today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure and tell all your friends. Coming up on today's show, a Canadian trade delegation is in China, but they're busy talking about detainees. Also, who is going to operate the pot shops in Ontario? A lottery is being held to determine that. As well, free speech on campuses. Why do we need rules for that now? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Podcast. Thanks for listening. We've talked a lot on this show about what has transpired since the arrest of the CFO of Huawei in Vancouver in early December. Uh, two Canadian businessmen, of course, uh, disappeared shortly after that, were detained. Michael Spaver, Michael Kovrig. Uh, and uh, it was a while before we got in touch with them through consular services and uh, found out exactly uh, where they were and what their conditions were. Uh, no charges as yet. However, the uh, latest reports from officials in China saying they have no doubt that these people uh, committed some sort of crime that uh, jeopardized national security. Uh, Fast forward, a Canadian uh, trade delegation set to go there, is there now, and and met this uh, earlier today. And the big chat was, well, is this going to be on the agenda? And initially it wasn't, but uh, somebody's going to bring it up, aren't they? And apparently that's what happened. Let's bring in Eric Miller, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. So initially, when was this meeting scheduled, and what was the purpose of it? Well, they have uh, a um, inter-parliamentary group uh, between Canada and China, and the idea is that several times a year they get together to promote uh, greater understanding between the two countries and good relations. And this delegation happened to fall at a time when the relations between the two countries are particularly fraught. Is it possible to have a meeting like this and somebody not bring it up? Well, uh, they've made clear, uh, the delegation on the ground have made clear that they do intend to raise it in some make or measure. Now, uh, in international diplomacy, there's the formal raising as if we will uh, formally make a point of tabling this, and then there is also asking after them. And so this is something that will undoubtedly come up during the visit, and certainly given the press coverage at home, it is something that uh, that uh, the press will themselves demand to know what was done and what was said. But the question is, what effect will it have? Uh, it appears as if it as it has already been brought up, and, and we're hearing reports that it was actually the Chinese that brought it up. Any thought on that? Sure. Well, the Chinese are very keen on getting uh, Madame Meng uh, out of Canada and back home to China, and so they have seen the two men who've been detained on national security charges as a bargaining uh, chit that they have, or two bargaining chits that they've had from the very beginning. And so the Chinese bring it up, and they are looking basically to make a deal where we'll give you these two Canadians in exchange for Madame Meng. But, of course, it's a lot more complicated than that because Canada's holding her as part of an extradition process with the United States. Uh, Who is setting the tone for this meeting, these meetings? Well, certainly uh, they have an agenda which has been agreed to and developed uh, from the beginning, but really this uh, particular affair will dominate things. You've seen a significant chilling of the relationship since the Madame Meng arrest, and so they are looking now at any and all ways that they can to try to put things back on track. Of course, this builds also on an earlier visit 
uh, with a number of ministers that went in November, albeit before the manga arrest, but in the wake of the closing of the new NAFTA, which had its provisions that restricted uh, the ability of countries to negotiate with so-called non-market economies, including China. Uh, obviously, you know, we've heard over the years, over the decades, what these relationships are like and, and how uh, it's about long-term relationships and building trust and such. It just seems, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it just seems that, that Canada is, is playing the cards very close to the chest and, and not, you know, not really being openly public about putting this on the agenda or talking about it. Obviously, it's going to come up anyway, whereas China seems willing, okay, here's what we're going to do. We want to get this resolved. Is that accurate? Well, the Chinese, as it I seems said, that we're want, play, excuse me, it seems that we're playing more towards them than they are towards us. I guess is, the, is my well. Point. They want to make a deal, and we're not necessarily looking to make a deal. We would like Madame Meng, I think, to move on to the U.S. as part of the extradition process, or at least to have her out of the country. But we don't want to set a precedent where the Chinese can go arrest any Canadian in the country and essentially use that to extract concessions. And so what Canada is trying to do is to explicitly uh, keep uh, the two processes delinked, where the Ming process is part of what we understand as Western legal due process, whereas we regard these arrests as something that are spurious and not based on legitimate activity that these people have undertaken. Uh, does China exp- Well, I'll ask this. What does China expect us to do here? Well, China is hoping that we will make a deal, and China has essentially conditioned the whole relationship uh, on trade and on everything else uh, as to on the grounds of whether or not uh, they get Madame Meng back. Certainly, Huawei is central to China's global strategy, technology, and otherwise, and seeing a person of her stature held is something that they are very seriously interested in rectifying. So they're trying any and all strategies that they can in order to be able to get this dealt with. What Canada is looking for is, are there ways that we can begin to do confidence-building measures? And discussions with parliamentarians, discussions with business people, as you've had the B.C. lumber delegation that went over there a couple of weeks ago, this is all the foundation of trying to get the relationship back on track. But the challenge is, is that the Chinese are conditioning everything through the lens of the Huawei uh, piece. What would, uh, if, uh, as the Chinese wished, we made some sort of deal, uh, what would that do for our relations with the United States? It would hurt it. Uh, it would hurt the, the relations with the United States. It would also undermine the credibility of the extradition process that, that we have uh, built up over many years. And what would so, our allies think of this? Our allies would be, I think, quite frankly, appalled. Uh, you read some of the uh, the coverage that came out of the Australian press about meetings with the intelligence community of the so-called Five Eyes countries, which are our key allies in the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia and so on. And there was an agreement that Huawei was something that was a problem, and Canada agreed to carry out the extradition request. And if we're throwing out our due process of law and our extradition request for a short-term expedient deal, then that's something that our allies will be very appalled with. Perhaps Donald Trump in some way uh, might understand that, although even he would be somebody uh, who would be relatively appalled. But for Canada, its whole approach to dealing with the Trump administration and the Chinese and so on has been institutions, processes, law, and all these other factors matter greatly and that we are going to be better off if we 
if we are following a principles rules based approach as opposed to just making one off deals here and there because then Canadians will get taken prisoner in any number of countries can, and can be used as bargaining chips for all sorts of different things. Uh, although uh, Canada and China, obviously very extreme, extremely different cultures and, and ideologies, uh, and we're trying to understand theirs, but clearly they must understand Canada's position here. What do they expect Canada to do? I mean, do well, they expect the, Chi- to, the and, Chinese and, have shown themselves to be remarkably poor at actually understanding our approach and our ways of doing things. They uh, they oscillate between thinking that Canada is a country they can deal with, and they and between that can and a country that they they fear fear is taking direction from the U.S. somehow. And of course, uh, Canada is a country that they can deal with, but we do have allies. But they don't get how due process of law and and these sorts of factors actually work. And so their expectation is let's keep going until we find something that will make them bite and then take the deal. But for us, this is not about making the deal per se for Madame Meng for for these two gentlemen. It's about carrying out the extradition uh, request that has been made and following the process of law. And then, of course, working on a separate track to try to get these men released from custody and to to have them uh, proven innocent. And so the Chinese, uh, they are hoping for something that Canada is ill-disposed to give them. And, uh, and, and so... So where uh, does that, that leave things, Eric? I mean, everybody seems to be dug in here pretty deep. Well, the, uh, you know, the challenge is, is that all the signs point to things getting worse rather than better. That's my, well, so, that was my next point, exactly. And so uh, don't expect a trade agreement. Don't expect uh, anything else. I mean, I think Canada's going to have to take a serious look at its relations and ask the question about uh, what do we need to be uh, doing with China. And you've noticed in the Canadian press a remarkable shift toward a skepticism about China that wasn't there before. Before it was about it's a big market and there's opportunities there. But now people are starting to say, you know, I'm not so sure. Have we been a little bit naive here, Eric, in the sense that we're so busy focusing on the golden goose, we're, we're forgetting about that at the end of the day it's the Communist Party of China? Well, my, uh, my view has been for some time that what, what the government... Uh, ought to do is ought to put together, much like was done when we did the free trade agreement with the United States and so on, they need to put together a group of uh, of the best and brightest people in the country on China and do a serious look at this relationship and figure out what our strategy is over the medium term. China's thinking about things in 10-year, 20-year horizons about where do we want to be with with Canada and a whole series of other countries, and we're not thinking about it. They are a huge country. And there is a, a need for uh, for a strategic look at it, but that's not something that has necessarily happened to date. But given the the clearly worsening state of relations, it is something that is uh, is urgently needed. And of course, factored into that is what is our relationship with other countries in Asia, including Taiwan. Uh, as you mentioned, this is something. This has been a courtship that's been going on for a while. How much does this set back China-Canadian relations? It sets it back enormously. Uh, the uh, uh, there's no hiding the fact that uh, that the Chinese are 
uh, are furious at this and uh, and are looking at uh, at uh, many ways uh, to try to uh, to try to pressure Canada to give up uh, Madame Meng. But the reality is is that China is run by the Communist Party. Uh, they are authoritarian. They do not have uh, ha- have the kind of due process of law. And so, forgetting that and hoping simply to have a a, a a sort of trade relationship with them, like you have with the U.S., was never something that was viable to begin with. And so, I think what we need is we need to look at China for what it is, not what we hope it will be. And boy, that's a good point, isn't out it? A relation, yeah, <laughs> just start building out a relationship on the basis of what it is. It doesn't mean that you can't have a good and constructive relationship with China, but it does mean that we can't be. Uh, we can't see them through rose-colored glasses and see them for what we hope they will be. We are, have to see them for what they are. Is China as furious with the United States who initiated all of this with the with the detaining of the CFO from Huawei? Are are they as furious with the United States as they they're, are with Canada? They're yeah, they're but their their fury is different with the U.S. It's tied up very much in the trade war and and uh, how they see uh, how they see. Uh, the United States um, acting in manners which they regard as being unfair or unhelpful to China. And so uh, with Canada, this is principally about the, the Huawei CFO, and certainly they were irritated with the Article 3210 of the new NAFTA and, and so on. But with the U.S., this is about uh, the U.S. having tariffs on uh, billions of dollars of Chinese goods and threatening tariffs on essentially the entirety of Chinese exports to the United States. That's not something that Canada has done. Uh, the Chinese came very close to ramming a U.S. naval vessel in the South China Sea in September. They're threatening U.S. naval vessels uh, openly now, uh, if they continue their freedom of navigation mission. So they have a, a deeper and more complicated uh, animosity toward the U.S. Uh, as opposed to toward Canada. With Canada, it's something that is potentially more manageable, but the U.S. is about a deeper structural question of who is going to be the dominant power globally. So how will this affect the Canadian economy moving forward, and is this delegation that is there now, is is this more about detainees than it is trade? No, this is about this is about the foundational piece of trying to keep the relationship going. As I said, it's a parliamentary delegation, and this is about building the relationship. The thing with the thing with China uh, like a lot of large countries, is it's labor intensive, and you have to go repeatedly to become known, to get trusted, to have people understand you, to have uh, to to understand what they're looking for, and so there there are these processes where there's a an ongoing investment of of time and resources in order to build up that that. Uh, that understanding and trust. But, of course, external events like the Meng arrest have somewhat derailed that relationship. So, ironically, having this legislative visit is actually very timely and very important because at least you can help to find ways to keep uh, things from worsening, even though all of the structural factors seem to point to a worsening over the next year. Eric Miller has been with us, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Eric, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Lots of chatter in regard to uh, legalized cannabis in this province. Those who wish to operate pot retail shops in the province can put their name in as the Ontario Pot Lottery opens today to see who will be granted uh, one of the 25 licenses. Uh, Hamilton's still undecided on the issue from a council standpoint. To talk more about all of this, Michael Armstrong is with us, PhD, Associate Professor, Goodman School of Business, Brock University, and with us now. Thanks for the time, Michael. Much appreciated. Happy to join you. Should there have uh, should they have done this via a lottery, or should this have been done on a merit-based system and those rewarded who were most qualified? Oh, that's a good question. The uh, provincial government seems to be doing this on the fly. They uh, started out with their announcement way back in August uh, after they won the election, saying, hey, we're going to have private retailers. There'll be no limit, number, total number of stores across the province. And then uh, when the legislation showed up in October, they said, well, actually, we're going to limit each chain to no more than 75 stores, uh, which is not a lot, but I guess it's sort of adequate for, to cover the province. And then just before Christmas, December, they said, oh, uh, we think there's a shortage of pots, so uh, we're only going to allow 25 stores initially, and you have to go through this uh, kind of rigorous lottery procedure to get them. So for a government that's supposedly open for business, they sure seem to be uh, restricting things on this business. Why do you think the change of heart, do you think it has anything to do with supply? Uh, I think it does. Uh, there, There is a supply problem uh, across Canada. Uh, most of the government retailers are having trouble gaining enough stock. Um, I think this is always an overreaction. Uh, you know, questions of supply, should we open the store? You know, those are private sector decisions. Those should largely be left for business. So is it an overreaction or is it an excuse? Uh, well, if it's an excuse, you'd have to come up with some other reason. And uh, Maybe one of my political science colleagues would speculate on that. But, um, no, I, I think it's it's the a reason, certainly. Um, but it's an overreaction if that's the reason. Uh, if they really want to limit, the limit should be much higher. I mean, 25 stores is not even the the uh, 40 government stores that the previous Liberal government had planned for. But nonetheless, that's what they're going for. How are other provinces handling their supply issues? Um, it varies. Uh, Quebec is limiting their store hours. Their uh, their government stores, and they only have 12. Uh, last time I checked, uh, they're not open every day. Uh, they have limited hours. Uh, a lot of websites, the government websites, uh, you see certain products just out of stock. Um, and it's not clear exactly what the main cause is. There's been lots of stories, but no real uh, conclusive uh, reporting. Part of it, undoubtedly, is just the natural uh, confusion, if you like, of getting a new industry started and sorting out, okay, uh, you know, we have all these greenhouses growing cannabis, but actually getting it packaged, getting it uh, through whatever government's testing, uh, the little uh, stamps they have to put on their products to say, yes, they pay the taxes, and then distributed, uh, that's a new process, and uh, there seem to be more hiccups than normal, but nonetheless, some of that is normal. Was this shortage predicted? Actually, to an extent, yes. Um, the uh, Way back in uh, summer and fall, uh, there were some uh, rough counts being made of total production, total orders, and saying, you know, we're probably going to have a shortage of the first couple months, but, uh, you know, within a year, we'll probably be reversing that. And we'll probably have a surplus with uh, so many greenhouses growing so much pot that uh, we'd have more than would be needed. Uh, so 
the shortage has turned out to be bigger than expected, but nonetheless, it's been expected. Uh, is the shortage just with government supply uh, and those who are participating, or, or those who were participating or are participating in the black market, does this affect them in any way? Is it just the black market that's having the shortage? Oh, the black market is, is having a wonderful time because they're not, they're not going through the government wholesalers. They're going through the uh, licensed uh, legal producers. So they're continuing to get their uh, illegal weed wherever they used to get it before. Um, so they are actually uh, have the best situation where the product itself is now legal. Uh, people can smoke it, you know, depending on the province, uh, fairly openly, like here in Ontario. You can smoke it almost anywhere you could smoke a cigarette. Um, so the product is illegal. There's less enforcement. Uh, you know, nobody's, the police aren't rounding up people smoking pot. Um, and yet they have almost no competition uh, from legal vendors. So it, it's currently kind of great for them. Uh, what is the criteria around the lottery? How, how would one get involved in that? Lottery's actually got some pretty strict rules on it. So first of all, it's a, lo- it's a lottery to choose applications. Uh, you, uh, there's a $75 fee. You submit your application uh, to the uh, provincial website run by the Alcohol and Gaming Commission. And uh, on Friday, they're going to draw uh, names. And what they're basically producing is a priority list for applications. So the first 25 names they draw will be allowed to apply for license. So it's not a a lottery to get the license. It's a lottery to get the application. Um, You are allowed to enter more than once, but only once per region. So they divide the province into five regions. They've got Toronto itself, uh, GTA around Toronto, and then they've got eastern Ontario, northern Ontario, and for us, we're in the western uh, region. So there will be a total of seven applicants selected uh, from all across Niagara, Hamilton, all the way up to Windsor, that whole, what they're calling the Western region. Um, So the first uh, 25 names on that list will apply. They'll have to submit a license fee, but also a $50,000 deposit. Because what the province is saying is, if we approve your license, you must open on April 1st. Hmm. And if you're not opening April 1st, we will start to draw down that $50,000 deposit. If you haven't opened by the end of the month, you lose the whole 50000 What if they're not opening because of shortage of supply, and that shortage of supply comes from the government? So how can the government find people for not being open when the reason they're not open is because of a supply that the government controls? Are you suggesting you don't completely trust uh, <laughs> Mr. Ford? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't trust any politician. <laughs> well, that's probably wise. Well, um, I imagine what they would... Number one, I'm sure they're hoping that the, you know by April there should be easily enough supply for 25 stores. Uh, but failing that, they're, I think uh, presumably they'll say, okay, well, open with whatever you got. Whatever we can give you, that's what we want you to sell. Right. Uh, but nonetheless, you're, you're very right. This is a, it's a risk for the, uh, the entrepreneur who's putting in this application because they have to commit to April 1st, even though you know, the government isn't really committing very much in terms of what supply would actually be available, uh, or much else going on, the other, and that this uh, this whole rationing uh, of 25 licenses, they set that up so it tentatively goes until December of this year. Um, presumably, if the government sees that supply has increased, they'll they'll start running more lotteries uh, or just open it up widely. Um, but that's to be announced. 
Uh, does it sound like the uh, government is dragging its feet for political reasons as opposed to business reasons? I'm sure there are still members of the uh, government, uh, the social conservatives uh, element, if you like, of the provincial conservative party that really aren't keen about cannabis and would, are just quite happy to see it delayed a little bit longer. Uh, whether that's driving the whole policy, um, it's probably influencing it, but I really don't know uh, how much weight that's having. What about, as you said, uh, you, you know, the whole thing behind this was to regulate it, control it, uh, keep it out of the hands of kids, safety, all of that stuff, and and eliminate the black market. Uh, again, it seems what they've done here is create an open window for the black market to thrive while they try to figure out what the heck they're doing. Um, it almost seems counterproductive to what their initial goal was. That's uh, unfortunately probably a pretty good summary. Uh, I don't think uh, anyone really set out with that intention uh, of creating this kind of uh, chaos. And I suppose to be fair, uh, there are fewer illegal dispensaries running openly now than there were uh, back in the uh, summer of early fall. Uh, a lot of the, dis- the dispensary shops, the shops that were kind of openly uh, selling illegal products, they did shut down in October. Uh, but last I, last news report I saw, there were still, say, 30 stores running in the Hamilton area. Um, what will happen to them when this all comes well, to fruition? I, they should eventually be shut down, but... Um, you know, again, it's it's kind of the best situation for them. The yes, they're still technically illegal, but uh, you know, the police departments are looking, and saying, "Hey, we've got all these priorities. Um, cannabis stores, yeah, that wasn't a very high priority in the first place, and now the product is legal. Um, so really, it's just a question of, well, you know, if it's an unlicensed vendor, uh, that's really more bylaw enforcement almost level. <laughs> it's almost like it's not a police issue anymore, isn't it? it like you said, it's. It's, uh, it's almost like a bylaw issue now. It's become that, and, and the, there is a risk that uh, if we don't, uh, whether it's quickly or slowly, I don't know, but if we don't make progress on getting more legal vendors, more legal shops set up, uh, we risk going down the path that California went down last year. So there are some news stories coming out uh, late December about their experience. Uh, they kind of did what we did at the state level, uh, about a year ago, they legalized cannabis and said, hey, great, we're going to allow private vendors. We'll have thousands of stores across the state. Uh, but what happened was most jurisdictions, most of the cities in California, uh, put bylaw restrictions in place that either banned the stores, about 80% of the cities just banned them outright, or they put really heavy taxes on them so it was difficult for them to operate. And so what they found by the end of the year is they had only about 10% of the number of stores they thought they are going to have but the black market was just having a wonderful time because they had all this demand that opened up because the product is now legal. Uh, and so you're seeing things like uh, delivery services started up where uh, kind of like a Lyft or an Uber or a Skip the Dishes kind of outfit would buy legal cannabis in one city and then deliver it into a you know dry city where cannabis shops are not allowed. Wow. So the bylaw bans didn't actually stop cannabis con- consumption or purchase, they just shifted it from having a local retail store that would have paid taxes and sold legal product to either uh, out of jurisdiction store or just you know to the black market. So we are in danger of going down that path, 
if we don't uh, get some private sector stores up and running, uh, and if we don't have our, our city councils, uh, they need to allow these stores to operate. When this uh, all settles down and, and the system, whatever it is, is in place, uh, will it be as restrictive as what the LCBO and the beer store is now? Or are we going to see a mixed bag of this because they're so laid out of the gate and they're creating scenarios that are letting these, these sort of situations flourish? Well, here in Ontario, since we're going the private sector route, uh, every entrepreneur, every chain, is, I'm sure, is going to have its own business strategy in terms of uh, what you would see in the store, uh, their uh, what they would emphasize in terms of products, you know, what market segments are they looking for? The young, kind of the younger crowd who wants to get really high. They're going to cater more to older folks who just want some pain relief, a mild buzz, something like that. Um, a, about a year from now, we're going to start to see the edible products, cannabis beverages, cannabis uh, food, um, and again, some stores may emphasize that versus the smokable pot. So I think there'll be a lot of variety in terms of what we'll see in the retailers. Um, what will be standard is the federal government has got really strict limits on promotion, uh, advertising. Uh, it's not even clear whether you could have say, a, a, a sell a cannabis T-shirt uh, in the stores. Is that considered uh, advertising or not? Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty there, but I think we'll see a lot of variety uh, apart from that. Uh Government will the government still be able to control pricing with having so much private uh, influence? Um, well, the government, because it controls the wholesaler, uh, all the legal product, uh, although it's going to be produced at private growers and sold at private retail stores, all has to go through the government uh, Ontario Cannabis uh, distribution system. Right. So kind of that part will be like the LCBO. All the alcohol has to go through the LCBO. All the cannabis has to go through the Ontario Provincial Cannabis Distributor. So they will have full control of wholesale pricing as much as they want. Um, When it comes to saying the retail prices, uh, that presumably is going to be left up to the individual retailers, uh, given that the province is going to set essentially the floor through their wholesaling. At price, and then the uh, federal government is tacking on the excise, uh, what is it, a dollar a gram or 10%, whichever is higher. And then, of course, you have to pay uh, uh, the uh, GST, HST tax on, to- on top of any sales. So the government won't directly control the price, but they will certainly be able to influence it through those, those mechanisms. Uh, we've certainly seen in Ontario uh, the effect of contraband cigarettes and and people avoiding taxes and high prices that way. Won't it be easier to do this in the cannabis industry? Uh, I mean, this is very different from the days of prohibition when they allowed alcohol. Well, uh, I think it, it is. It is well, it will be easy because it is easy. It's already happening, and that's uh, one thing to keep in mind. Is there already is cannabis consumption, cannabis distribution, cannabis growing illegally. So how are so if that is happening and once retail starts selling for its price, what's to stop the black market just from undercutting them and continuing to do what they do? All the really legal cannabis is doing is bringing in more customers, is it not? Uh, to some extent, that's undoubtedly true. In fact, in the current situation where we only have the Ontario Cannabis uh, website, 
uh, I suspect a lot of their customers are people who, you know, just want to try it for the first time. Um, and beyond that, uh, I think in the short term, uh, to a large extent, you're right. Uh, the black market is going to lose a little bit of share, but they're just going to lower their price a little bit. Uh, they're still offering some products like uh, edibles, uh, food and drink that you can't get in the re- legal stores. They're still providing some services, uh, you know, uh, delivery to your door that you can't get yet. Uh, however, looking longer term, uh, some of those advantages are going to disappear. And one of them, in fact, I think eventually will be price. Because now that we have the big corporations growing cannabis on massive scale, uh, some of them are starting to automate their warehouses. Some are looking at growing in tropical countries like Colombia, where you don't need a greenhouse. You can just grow it outdoors. And so they're, uh, they're looking at pushing the price way down. So the wholesale price of some of the producers is already uh, approaching less than a dollar a gra- uh, gram. And uh, they're looking at getting it down in the pennies per gram. So wh- when that happens and assuming the province is willing to pass on that reduction to the wholesale, I think eventually the legal product will actually be cheaper than the uh, illegal product, because that legal, illegal stuff is grown by hand in small batches. Um, right, good point. The, the one thing about cannabis, though, is if you really want to, you can just grow it yourself. Yeah. Uh, you may not get the same quality. Uh, you won't get the same uh, processing and such, but if all you want is some basic pot to smoke, uh, anybody can just grow their four plants. Uh, who will be applying for these licenses? Is this is this suitable for a mom and pop type business, or is this big corps? Uh, I think you're going to get all of the above. Um, the uh, provincial government, I, I think that is one thing they they have kind of put a slant into the rules for the whole uh, the whole retail side. Is they do want to see uh, mom and pop uh, independent business shops entrepreneurs getting into the market. That's, I think, why they set the 75-store limit uh, per chain. Um, but practically speaking, longer term, I think it's going to be mostly uh, big corporations, big chains, uh, just like the same reason you see it in any other kind of product. You get uh, economies of scale. You have advantages when it comes to making uh, advertising, getting your brand known. But I think in the initial uh, application, uh, you're going to see all kinds of variety. Uh, if you look at Saskatchewan, they held a lottery about a year ago for their private retailers, and uh, there was a real mix. One of the winners was a uh, undergraduate business student. Uh, she wrote up her uh, application as part of a uh, homework assignment for mm-hmm. one of her university courses, <laughs> and she got she got the selection. Um, so I think you'll see quite a range, uh, but it's it's cert- the people who apply really have to be aware of the risks involved, uh, the commitment involved. Um, but if it works out, you know, you're going to have a quasi-monopoly you know, with only seven stores, you know, in the whole of Western Ontario. That might mean one shop in Hamilton. So if you're the only legal shop in Hamilton for the first uh, six to 12 months, uh, that's a really big potential reward there and might be worth taking some big risks to get. Michael Armstrong has been with us, Ph.D. Associate Professor Goodman School of Business at Brock University, talking about uh, those that wish to operate pot retail shops can get their name into the lottery today. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Free speech policies that the Ontario government has pushed for on campuses and universities has now come into effect. Uh, How has... 
uh, the the mood, the the culture on universities changed over the years, and why do we need such legislation now? Let's bring in Mark Mercer, Chair of Philosophy, St. Mary's University, as head of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, and is uh, an articulate proponent of maximum free expression. Mark is with us now. Mark, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, hi, Scott. Yes. So, uh, I don't know how old you are, and I don't want to date any of us here, but how has the attitude on Canadian campuses changed over the last few decades? I think, I think it has changed. Uh, I'm not a historian, and I don't have the, um, uh, the, the data in front of me, but uh, my impression is that, uh, that things have changed, that um, um, uh, uh, professors, uh, not, not just students, but professors are much more interested now, I think, in the... Um, uh, bringing uh, uh, students through into the uh, into the professional world um, and and making them um, you know, good citizens and, and aware and conscious of uh, of uh, their responsibilities as, as citizens. And I think in the past, uh, professors, when I uh, my professors and when I first began as a professor, we were uh, really just concerned about intellectual engagement with the uh, with the subject. Um, what really mattered to us was was thinking hard and long and as clearly as possible about um, uh, um, difficult uh, intellectual matters. But I think that's uh, that's faded away somewhat, not entirely. Universities are still places of intellectual engagement, but I think uh, they've um, uh, uh, turned a bit more to preparing students for citizenship and careers and things like that. How does that how does that bridge the gap here? How how so it's professors views that have changed and now they are uh, shared with the students as well. Um, help me with this. Well, that's right. I think uh, professors' views have changed. They see uh, part of their part of their task more is now a social mission. Now, of course, the university has always had a social mission, but it's usually, usually didn't that uh, where this all isn't that where that this all started. Well, I think so. Yes, I think uh, yeah. The, uh, the the idea that uh, we are sort of directly responsible for um, uh, uh, bringing our students into the uh, in, in, into the uh, the adult sphere, rather than um, indirectly just by uh, uh, engaging in intellectual um, inquiry. Now it's more like you want to, the, the professors want to mold their students to take uh, appropriate roles in uh, in the wider world. Uh, I, I guess that's positive, uh, unless well, it ban so. unless it bans free speech. <laughs> well, it does. I mean, well, it 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 it, it can have um, uh, unfortunate repercussions for freedom of expression on campus, um, for uh, the uh, the breadth of topics uh, studied. Uh, if if the concern is to make sure that um, uh, students are um, uh, uh, have a you know a pleasant and and uh, um, not n- not a time that um, you know affects them badly emotionally or whatever, so that they can then take their role in the professions and the managerial uh, sphere. Uh, then that can mean that there are certain topics that are off limits, or at least certain things uh, that uh, can be said in those topics that uh, uh, we ought not say because that might make it for an unpleasant. Um, school environment for some students, and that might then prevent them from uh, moving through and taking their uh, their positions in uh, law and government and business and the rest. We remember uh, some of, uh, of the tumultuous situations in campuses back in the 60s, uh, traditional uh, establishment uh, types of institutions, uh, kids rebelling against that, uh, more free spirit, more liberalization. Have we gone too far? Because these are the same people now making these decisions that were, you, you know, had the rally cry back in the 60s and 70s. 
Well, this is very interesting. And now, this is not original with me. Lots of people have said this, but they've noted that while the students in the 60s and maybe even into the early 70s were rebelling for more freedom on their own exactly. part, exactly uh, to assume uh, more responsibility, to have uh, a larger say in things, to bring things out of the administration. Now, students and 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 many faculty. I mean, I, I think that uh, the, uh, the the role of faculty has to be appreciated here as well. Uh, but uh, uh, students and and many faculty are attempting to uh, create more rules and and um, you know more guidance and and bring the administrative uh, administration in. Um, uh, more, um, uh, more, more deeply into uh, the day-to-day uh, of affairs of, of the students. We saw this at St. Mary's University, uh, uh, certainly when our, um, our, our president uh, was uh, upfront about uh, um, bringing back the um, in-place-of-parent doctrine that uh, uh, used to be um, uh, part of the university experience, where the, uh, the administration is, is working in the place of the parent, and, and, and that was removed, or well, at least attenuated in the, uh, in the 60s and early 70s. And he's speaking explicitly about bringing it back. And the students don't seem to mind. Um, you know, they, they're... Um, they, uh, many of them um, like that there's order and rules and, uh, and, and, and boundaries, um, and I think that's rather unfortunate. So are those who, is the generation that protested for spree, uh, free speech back in the day, are they the same generation that's restricting it now? Well, I, maybe. I, I, that might be right, but I think the, uh, uh, the analysis uh, has to be a bit more subtle. Uh, when, when people um, agitate for more freedom of expression, for more civil liberties generally, they can, do for, uh, they can do so for one of two reasons. One is that they have other political goals, and they think that restrictions on free speech are preventing them from attaining those political goals. Um, another reason they can have is that they um, value freedom of expression for its own sake. They value the civil liberties for their own sake. And so I think those, those two groups were, were together in the 60s, and um, the, um, uh, the, the people who were agitating for freedom of expression because they wanted to be able to um, um, uh, get their message out, uh, different messages, messages about uh, uh, peace and war and, and, and all the rest, um, well, they're now in the, uh, the academy, and they can um, you know, talk about the things they want to talk about, and so freedom of expression for them was always just an instrument, never something to be valued for its own sake. And uh, so for them, um, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the goal as far as freedom of expression has been won, and now they find that freedom of expression um, enables views that, are, that they believe to be detrimental, given their uh, position, uh, to, uh, to be aired. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it might be part of that. I think that, that there are people who um, are... Um, uh, supportive of freedom of expression and the other civil liberties just for their own sake. But not everyone at every time who supports freedom of expression does so for its own sake. They often do so because they think that they are on the losing end of, uh, of uh, censorship and suppression. Um, for example, uh, um, say homosexuality uh, uh, might not uh, have been um, something one could talk about freely in the 60s. Hmm. And that was too bad. And those who uh, who thought that this was unfortunate for um, uh, uh, for people in society and for society generally might agitate for freedom of expression so that they can then openly air and, and openly discuss matters like homosexuality, abortion, uh, feminism, um, and, and the rest. But that might not be a commitment to freedom of expression itself. 
Uh, in the old days, and I'm, I'm generalizing here, in the old days, it appeared the establishments were more to the right, the students were more to the left. Now, has the pendulum swung too far in that direction? Um, Without making it too political. Yeah, I, I don't know about uh, right, left, uh, just, just how useful they are anymore. Um, it might have been the case that, that right and left was useful when there was a, you know, a living, active socialist movement, uh, and uh, we don't have that anymore. Uh, and so uh, what could be right or left? Um, uh, I don't think there's any great split in Canadian society over, say, um, you know, the rights of homosexuals to uh, live freely and uh, uh, work alongside uh, and you know, uh, uh, go to school and, and health care and all the rest. So you can't really, you know, the, the, those sort of social issues don't really uh, create a left-right divide either. Um, uh, I, I I tend to think of um, in the case of universities. I don't know about uh, society at large, but in the case of universities, I think that um, the, um, the the idea that uh, we're there to pursue study for its own sake because uh, we enjoy the pursuit and we also just want to know how things are, and it matters to us that we're coming to the conclusions we come to for our own good reasons rather than for you know pressures of of wanting to fit in or. or or fearing that we won't fit in, um, you know, it's important to me that um, universities have that as their core. Uh, but for many, um, the idea is that the, uh, uh, the the that it's it's maybe put it this way: um, even some professors, uh, and you know, unfortunately, some professors think that it's better to have the correct attitudes for the wrong reasons <laughs> than to have the incorrect attitudes for you know, uh, articulate, uh, hmm. um, deep, uh, deep uh, reasons that, you know, might in the end be mistaken, but at least you've thought it out for yourself. So I think the, um, uh, the, 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 the problem might be that for many people, um, even within the academy, um, independent thought is, uh, isn't what it's cracked up to be, that, that independent thought can create social problems uh, more, than it can, uh, more than it can help us uh, to, uh, to deal with them. Aren't university students capable of balancing all of that? I don't know if there's anything to balance. I would uh, I, I would hope that there um, that university students are there in order to acquire the ability to think mm. deeply and clearly about anything at all about any matter that comes to them. Um, you know, um, something you said earlier, Scott, about um, you know a change from the '60s. But what was the uh, what was happening before the the, the 60s? I, th- I think that, that that the idea of university that was uh, predominant in the 40s, 50s, and into the 60s is the one that's coming back now. I mean, if you look at, at many universities uh, in the 40s and 50s and, 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 and earlier, many of them were uh, religiously based, mm-hmm. right? They were associated yeah. with yeah. Um, with a particular uh, with a particular church. Mm-hmm. And um, students and faculty at that church, at, at that university, had to have some affiliation with that uh, religion, and and had to abide by um, uh, moral and social and, and 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 maybe even political rules that those uh, that those institutions favored. Um, so I think that that's the same sort of thing that's happening now. Is hmm. the idea of the, um, well, not necessarily religious, but also the military colleges, the military um, universities as well. They would have a, a, a sort of code that marked out the sort of people they were. And um, there were pressures 
to be of that type, to conform to uh, to the um, the attitudes and the ways of of the religion or the uh, hmm. um, uh, the, the the um, branch of the service or whatever. So, is. how did we get back here? How did we get back to where we were before the the you know peace, love, and all that movement? How, how did we get back here? Why is there need for this legislation now? Um, you know, I well, first of all, I don't think the legislation is going to work. Uh, I, I, I don't. I, I think the uh, that really you need the, um, the the social base for the um, you know the, the the legislation to have uh, to have further good effects. Um, I, I I'm not sure that uh, that we're going to see much of a, a change because of the, the the legislation. But about your your your, your question itself, how did we get here? I, I really don't know. I, I think there's a, there's an analysis by. Um, uh, a couple of scholars who uh, who think that the um, uh, that that uh, uh, that there was an over an over concern um, on the part of uh, many people in the establishment in the uh, 60s, 70s, and into the 80s uh, for um, uh, uh, historically marginalized uh, people. Um, uh, historically marginalized people in, in Canada were making inroads and coming into uh, the mainstream and, 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 and finding good jobs and, and um, uh, the, the shackles of prejudice were, uh, were lessening. Uh, were lessening. And, and yet um, people in the, the, the establishment um, thought that, they're, you know, that they, they wanted to ease the, uh, the, the path for uh, uh, people from historically marginalized groups. And that sort of sensitivity then, um, you know, uh, uh, led to a change in the uh, the attitudes. Uh, th- these scholars refer to um, uh, uh, what they call dignity culture, where what matters to us is our 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 own dignity, our own um, uh, independence, uh, and a, a move from a dignity culture to what they call a a, a victimhood culture, uh, where uh, people hmm. want to emphasize their vulnerability. Uh, because in emphasizing their vulnerability, they gain sympathy from others, and, and so social resources are drawn to the uh, to, to the people who are seen to belong to to vulnerable groups. Now, why exactly there was this shift, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Um, you know, that's for the the sociologists and, and and the historians. But I think there's something to that analysis that um, you know the, um, the 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 concept of um, uh, Dignity of the individual being replaced by the um, uh, the uh, feeling of community within the group, and then especially uh, the solidarity of the group against the uh, uh, the oppressive uh, outsiders. I think that uh, uh, kind of explains some of what's going on. Does this make you feel more positive about what is happening and the exchanges that are happening on campuses? Oh, does what make me feel more positive? The fact that we are talking about this and a government sees a need to, to, to bring forth a policy. Oh, yes. No, I, I think uh, I, and it's a wonderful development that, uh, these, uh, that, that matters of uh, the uh, civil liberties on campus, freedom of expression on campus, have, uh, have, have come to the, uh, to the public fore. I think this is, uh, uh, this is, this is terrific um, because it gives um, people a chance to think about what they want universities to do, what universities are for. Um, I'm kind of pluralist. I mean, I don't, I don't mind if there are some universities that are, you know, universities of, uh, of, of reassurance and uh, um, uh, vocational or whatever, and other universities that are uh, more about the abstract and the theoretical. But I certainly want there to be some that are about the abstract and the theoretical, about the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake and the like. 
Um, and uh, I think that uh, when, when people are talking, they, they, they realize how far uh, universities uh, in general have, have fallen from that ideal. And if that ideal is appealing to them, um, then they can uh, start to, uh, to ask for um, some university spaces that uh, are closer to that ideal. Uh, do you feel universities are moving forward or backwards on this issue? Well, I think they're treading water. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't see much, much move. But you see, it's trying um, to keep everybody happy. Well, trying to keep everybody happy. Yes, uh, I think a lot um, has, uh, has to do with the um, uh, the quality of academic administrators. Uh, you know, there are very good academic administrators, but uh, but generally, academic administrators are either um, just trying to please everyone, and they'll go with where they think the, uh, the, the wind is blowing, um, or they're, um, you know, concerned about the, uh, 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 the financial stability of the university. That's a wonderful thing to be concerned about, of course, uh, or uh, the uh, reputation of their university, the reputation of the university in the eyes of the people that matter to them. The people that matter to them are often um, from outside the uh, university, um, uh, social activists and, and, and business people and government and the like. And so their allegiance isn't always to dispassionate scholarship, uh, to um, um, the engagement, uh, the intellectual engagement with uh, the, uh, uh, the things of the world. Um, they um, don't often, they can often see their stu- the students more as customers or consumers mm. than as um, apprentice intellectuals. Uh, and uh, because of that, um, you know, the, uh, uh, there hasn't been, I don't think in Canada we have a strong, forceful uh, university president or academic vice president who is standing up for freedom of expression on campus. Um, and so we don't have that sort of uh, figure uh, at a university for, uh, for people to, to, to rally around. Um, and because the, um, uh, uh, those who uh, prize freedom of expression on campus and the you know, robust uh, uh, critical exchange of ideas, um, are, uh, don't see uh, a willingness to, uh, uh, to, to uh, um, uh, uh, honor freedom of expression on the part of our, our university administrators, uh, well, there's, there's not much that can happen, not much that we can, uh, that we can do. Mark Mercer has been with us, Chair of Philosophy. St. Mary's University is head of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. Uh, free speech policies at Ontario campuses have, has been the discussion. Mark, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.